It's Midday Magazine for Monday, December 11th. I'm Shelby Herbert. Petersburg Medical Center symbolically broke ground at the construction site of its new hospital facility last Friday. Even some of the project's critics came out to witness the ceremony. <laughs> We're going to have it at the assembly. Dozens of people braved the rain and snow to see Petersburg Medical Center administrators break ground on the new hospital project. Site work actually began in November, and now a giant pit yawns in the muskeg. It was cold and wet, and the ground had turned to mud beneath people's feet. But the attendees were still in good spirits. PMC's current facility is rapidly falling out of code, and some hospital employees are raring to start work in the new building. Elise Kubo is one of them. She's in charge of the hospital's medications. She said she's pleased that Bettisworth North, the company contracted to design the hospital, took input from PMC employees on the project. The space that we currently have does not work for everything that we need it to do. I have had quite a lot of back and forth with the architects about what the new space needs to look like and how it needs to function. And I am just so pleased that they are listening to the people who work there as they are making the design decisions. But not everyone is as happy as Kubo about the plans. Some in the community are worried about the new hospital's flat roof. Petersburg gets about 110 inches of precipitation per year. And their concern is that big snow loads and seasonal freezing and thawing patterns could damage the brand new building. Kate Incarnado is an architect with Bettisworth North. She said installing a pitched roof on the facility was too expensive, so they went with a more level roof. And she says appearances are deceiving. The roof they've proposed isn't completely flat. This roof on this building is not flat. Um, It is sloped. You can't see it behind the parapets, but it is sloped. Um, It has proper drainage. The membrane is very thick. Yeah, there are a lot of concerns with um, a lot of our clients about flat roofs in those systems. And, um, you know, they see a lot of flat roofs from 30 years ago failing. And they're like, it's the flat roof. It's the flat roof. And the systems have come a very long way since then. And um, so we feel like the roof is going to last a long time. Others in the community are worried about how PMC is financing the project. PMC's goal is to secure about $100 million for the new facility, all from grants. To date, they've secured a total of $29 million for the project. PMC is currently requesting $37 million from the 2024 state capital budget to build the shell and core of the main hospital building. Then, they'll have to secure an additional $30 million to complete the project. Petersburg Borough Vice Mayor Donna Marsh has been critical of the plan from the get-go. She's voted against several initiatives to make way for the project. But she still attended the ceremony, where she said she's coming around to the idea, especially now that PMC has secured funding for its Workforce Education Resource Center and has taken the steps to secure even more for its main building. I don't know that it makes sense to, you know, dig my heels in and say, no, (laughs) I I definitely can see myself uh, turning around on this just because um, we've got a lot of support financially. However, Marsh is still worried about what the future holds, especially the cost to maintain the facility down the line. 
as well as any unforeseen problems with construction. But I guess down the road in five years, I know every new facility, um, a lot of glitches with new construction. So I anticipate the same thing will be here. When the time came to pick up the shovels, PMC CEO Phil Hofstetter congratulated the community on pulling it together for what assembly members have dubbed the biggest project in the history of Petersburg. As we move forward with the future of health care in Petersburg, I expressly want to thank the borough for their commitment to the community on this project. It is the biggest project in the history of Petersburg. We could not be here today without their support and collaboration. A mound of gravel sits at the opening of the pit. At the end of the ceremony, each hospital board member and CEO Phil Hofstetter grabbed a clean shovel to dig in and toss some gravel on the spot where the new facility is set to be built. In Petersburg... I'm Shelby Herbert. (laughs) Governor Mike Dunleavy amended a state disaster declaration to include communities on Prince of Wales Island last week. The declaration stems from the deadly November 20th landslide in Wrangell. The The same storm system that hit Wrangell also caused widespread flooding and landslides on Prince of Wales Island. The cities of Heidelberg and Craig are on Prince of Wales. With the governor's amendment to the declaration, residents of the island who were impacted by the weather event now qualify for state disaster relief. Jeremy Zedek is with the state's Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. At the current moment, with our state disaster declaration, the state's disaster recovery programs would cover 100% of the cost. During the November 20th storm, roads and culverts were washed out on Prince of Wales Island. Power poles were snapped in half, and residents reported multiple power outages. Wrangell's landslide was the deadliest in recent memory in Alaska. The full extent of the damage is still unknown. The state and FEMA, or the Federal Emergency Management Agency, will be visiting Wrangell and Prince of Wales to conduct a damage assessment. Zedek says the state already conducted an assessment to amend the declaration, but they hope to get federal assistance too. The purpose of the preliminary damage assessment is really to partner with FEMA, go out there, take a look at the damages, verify those. So if we do request federal assistance, we'll have FEMA on board with what was damaged. If the federal government does declare a disaster, 75% of the cost is covered by FEMA and 25% of the cost would be covered by the state. The state and FEMA will be on the ground in Wrangell and Prince of Wales this week to document the damages. Zedek says this won't look any different for the people affected by the slides and flooding. It's just assistance coming from a different pot of money. But for some, he says, the pot of money can seem hard to find kind of a complicated program. We always try to maximize the benefit that we can provide to people. And, you know, it is kind of a process. Some folks uh, are not eligible for grants, but some folks are, and they really have to fill out that application and go through the process in order for us to determine what they're eligible for. Sedek encourages residents of Wrangell and Prince of Wales Island who were affected by the landslides or flooding to register for individual assistance. 
You can do that online at ready.alaska.gov IA or call 844-445-7131. Students were evacuated from Harborview Elementary School in Juneau last Friday after the school received a bomb threat. The threat came in just before noon via phone call, according to an update from the Juneau School District's app. Juneau Police Department spokesperson Lieutenant Craig Campbell says the FBI assisted in the investigation and confirmed that the phone call was sent from a number connected to threats made to different schools across Alaska in recent months. Students were briefly evacuated to the playground while police cleared the school. Classes were back to normal within an hour. A brief stay-put order was also put in place at A. Juno Douglas High School. District Superintendent Frank Hauser says the safety of students is the district's top priority. I'm saddened to think that there are uh, individuals on the Internet and out there that are um, propagating these uh, messages and causing such disruptions in our schools. Campbell says the investigation is ongoing. We take all these threats seriously and try to respond as soon as possible to determine uh, if there's anything unsafe or there's any credibility to the threats because our ultimate goal is to keep our residents and community members and our children safe. Mass threats to schools have been on the rise across the country. In September, multiple schools in Alaska received threats via email. A Peruvian man was later arrested for sending more than 150 bomb threats to U.S. schools, including in Alaska. The Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act allowed for Alaska Native communities to establish for-profit corporations more than 50 years ago. But five Southeast communities were left out. There are now federal bills that would recognize Haines, Ketchikan, Petersburg, Tenakee Springs, and Wrangell under the law known as ANCSA and create five new Alaska Native corporations. The proposal, the proposal initially saw opposition from the Wilderness Society, but a recent report from Indian Country Today says the environmental organization has shifted course and is now in support of including the five communities in ANCSA. Indian Country Today reporter Jocelyn Estes, who's a Shingit, told Wesley Early that the reason the five communities were left out in the first place likely had to do with population. What stands out is that all five had more non-natives than natives living in them. They were predominantly non-native. Now, what's odd about that is that there were smaller villages that had fewer natives, but they were a higher percentage of the population, and they were allowed to become, you know, to form native corporations. So, for instance, Wrangell is, was 19% Alaska native with 747 enrolled citizens, whereas Craig had 317, less than half, but they were 56% native and they were allowed to form a native corporation. So there's also been speculation that the reason they were left out is because they were logging towns, and some of their competitors or would-be competitors thought that forming native corporations there would complicate relations with U.S. Forest Service and basically become competition for them.
So the Wilderness Society initially didn't want these five communities to be uh, ANCs or recognized. Uh, what was their reasoning before? Well, in the early days after the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act was adopted, um, the corporations were struggling. They had a little bit of startup money, but they needed to make a lot of money fast to stay solvent. And so they turned to logging and they selected lands based on the timber potential. And um, that lasted until the bottom fell out of the timber market. And But there were there have been more than 100 amendments to the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, and one of them was to allow corporations to sell net operating losses, and that's what they turn to next. Now, a lot make money under the Small Business Administration 8A program, which gives them an advantage in federal contracting. But the Wilderness Society and other environmental groups were afraid that these new corporations would turn to logging on lands they selected from the Tongass National Forest. And I guess, uh, what changed their mind? Why are they now in support of um, allowing these communities to establish corporations? I think logging is not economically viable. And um, so back when they were logging like crazy, they um, the U.S. Forest Service had a 50-year contract to supply a certain amount of timber to put that out there available for the market. Well, Congress did away with that law. And so that, you know, there's not a guarantee that you're going to get any amount of timber out of the Tongass. And you have to go through a, a really lengthy process to get timber. So that's part of it. The other thing, though, and what the Wilderness Society says, they basically see this as a matter of social justice. Alaska Natives gave up all the land and resources in Alaska in exchange for title to some of it and some money, and these Natives were left out. And so it's a, ma- it's a matter of social justice now for the Wilderness Society, and that overrides concern about the environment in this case. And um, you've been following a lot of this for quite a while. Is there any sense that serious traction will be made on granting those, uh, those rights to those communities? You know, there's also, in addition to the environmental groups, there's opposition from people who don't want to see public lands transferred to for-profit entities. And uh, the Petersburg Assembly actually voted four to three to oppose the legislation. And I saw a letter from uh, a resident of, a part-time resident of Tenneke Springs who said, the lands that have tentatively been identified for selection include some very popular hunting and fishing and recreation sites. And they they don't want to see that go out of uh, the public domain and into private hands. So there is opposition. And they've been, these five communities have been trying to make this happen for decades now. So your guess is as good as mine as to how much traction they have now. That was Indian Country Today reporter Jocelyn Estes speaking with Wesley Early. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.